We are uh, beginning a four-week sermon series this morning uh, entitled Unity in the Church. Now, I want to I preface this uh, sermon series with just a little bit of insight into just my philosophy of preaching. Um, there is a season and a time for what we would call topical preaching. Um, and when it comes to topical preaching, for me, I, I feel that those topics that are best preached tend to be more theological doctrine, bringing clarity to maybe specific issues of our day. Um, and so we find ourselves in the midst of a four-week sermon series that potentially could be considered topical. We're going to primarily be talking about unity in the church. I hope what you find over the next four weeks, though, is that we're simply going to be coming to text in Scripture that deals specifically with unity in the church and expounding on it. Uh, the, the preaching of the Word of God will still unfold in this place. Now, I will say about topical preaching that I, f- I believe it is not helpful for the preacher to come to such a topic as we do this morning in the midst of the life of the church to confront specific issues that are happening in the life of the church. I want to guard the pulpit from being, uh, if you will, a bully pulpit. I want to respect the integrity of the pulpit, but also the integrity of the listeners. Uh, And so, because we're at the beginning of this together, and I do not uh, know all of maybe the the issues that are happening among relationships and in the life of the church, this is the best time, I believe, for us to come and talk about unity in the church this morning. Now, that's not my only reason for us doing this. Uh, The primary reason that I believe and have felt the Lord's leading for us to discuss what Scripture has to say to us about unity in the church over the next four weeks primarily is because I believe that there are three ways that we see Satan attacking the local body to bring about division and discord and to harm our witness here in San Antonio and to the ends of the earth. One of those would be a low view of Scripture, not submitting to the authority and sufficiency of Scripture. Another one would be um, allowing sin to be normalized, allowing sin to go unrepented uh, and, and, and not having a confession happening in our hearts and minds and lives each and every day. But then thirdly, I believe we, we see in Scripture that the, the other way that we see Satan attacking the local church is to bring about disunity in the body. If you look at every single one of Paul's letters to the churches, in every letter he addresses unity in the body of Christ and fighting against discord and disunity. Why? Because every single church is susceptible to discord. Every single church is susceptible to be disunified in the efforts that Christ has called us to be and who he has called us to be as his church. And so, disunity is one of the greatest threats to every local church, including this one. So regardless of what the past has been, regardless of what the future will be, the truth remains the same. That disunity in the church is always rooted in selfishness and pride and sin. And so, 
As we enter into this sermon series together, I want us to learn and know how to combat disunity by first understanding what it is that unifies us, but then also understanding what we are prone to in our fallen, sinful state. As we look at Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11 this morning, there is an overarching theme that I believe we see, and that is this. Gospel-centered minds produced joy-filled unity. Gospel-centered minds produce joy-filled unity. Uh, We come to the letter to the church in Philippi. Uh, This is a short book, just four chapters. I would encourage you this afternoon to just go and read through all of Philippians. Um, It would take you about 15 minutes. Uh, But I love this book because in it you genuinely see and feel and sense Paul's heart and love for the church in Philippi in particular. Uh, When I read through the book of Philippians, my mind immediately goes to dear brothers and sisters in Christ who live in Southeast Asia right now uh, that we were able to do life with and minister with. This, This book holds a special place in my heart because in it you see how much Paul loves the bride of Christ. And it's a beautiful picture. Uh, We read this morning in chapter 1 in our our fellowship together, and I hope you could sense his love for the church. The church in Philippi is doing a lot really well, but there is a threat to them in regards to unity. And so in this, we come to verses 1 through 11 of chapter 2, and it's, it's broken up for us into really two parts. You can see it for yourself there in the text, really. Uh, Verses 1 through 5 is the application. We see the commands. We see the imperatives of what it is we're to be about. But then in verses 6 through through 11, we see the great truth that supports the application. Now, this is important in our hermeneutic, the way we study the Bible, that we must understand that the Bible is not merely just a book of rules that we submit to because we call ourselves Christians. Everything we do in the Christian life, all of the application of Scripture, what we call the imperatives, the commands, flows from what we call the indicative, the statements of truth, doctrine, theology. We don't just act aimlessly because somebody told us to. Everything we do as people who are followers of Christ and as the church is directly connected to the grounding of doctrine and theology in our lives. Now, you can see this in the letters, the epistles. The writers of the epistles will start with doctrine. They're heavy on the doctrine at the beginning of their letters, and then what do they conclude with? The application. Here is what's true. Now, how do we apply this to our lives? This is a pattern throughout Scripture. What's interesting about verses 1 through 11 of Philippians chapter 2 is that Paul begins with the application, and he ends with the doctrine. So let's begin by looking at verses 1 through 4. And in these verses, we see that there is great joy in church unity. If you'd follow along with me, me beginning in verse 1, Paul says, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. 
Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Verse 1 begins with a transition word. Uh, My translation doesn't translate it this way, but we see the word therefore, and if you studied the Bible for any time or heard preaching in your life, you've probably heard a preacher say at one point, when you see the word therefore in the text, you need to go back and look at what it's there for, what has come before it. So Paul has in mind what he's already said in chapter 1. He's talked about their partnership in the gospel, that they're joined in bringing the gospel to completion, that they are all partakers of the gospel. And then last week we looked at verse 27 where he says that they are in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Our efforts as a church are, are to be unified for something greater than ourselves. So Paul has in mind chapter 1, but he also wants to point us to four joy-filled realities that encourage unity in the life of the church. You see all of these there in verse 1. You can look at the text and see it for yourself. It's no, no secret. It's not hidden there. First, he says, since there is, or so if there is, number one, encouragement in Christ. This is the comfort of knowing Christ and having his spirit. Now, some commentators believe that maybe he's talking about the encouragement that we have amongst each other, Uh, maybe the encouragement of Paul on them. That surely is true, but primarily here we're thinking of the comfort that we have in knowing Christ as our Lord and Savior and having his spirit reside in us. Secondly, he speaks to the comfort from love. This is a type of consoling love that we can only know through salvation. That we know that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. We are kept and secure in Christ for all of eternity. Thirdly, he points out the participation in the Spirit. That word participation is the word that you probably know, koinonia. It's fellowship. A fellowship that only the body of Christ can know. The world cannot understand the fellowship that we have in the Spirit. And then fourthly, he points out the affection and sympathy. I mentioned this briefly this morning, but this word affection in the Greek literally means bowels. Kind of gross. But what Paul is pointing out to them there is that there should be a deep, emotional, genuine love and care for the other people that are gathered in this place this morning. It's not superficial, it's true, it's genuine. And he he presents all of these in kind of a rhetorical question. If you've experienced the encouragement and comfort and participation and the affection that comes in knowing Christ Jesus, then do this. But the reality for us is that these are all true for each of us who are in Christ this morning. If you've come to faith in Christ and you are a member of this church, you know of the encouragement and the comfort and the participation and the affection that we have for one another in this place, rooted and grounded in Christ and Christ alone. These are things we all experience. But Paul says, I don't want you to stop there. He says, you see the joy that you have in Christ? He says, Complete my joy. Make my joy complete. Keep growing in the joy of striving for more. Strive for unity as the body of Christ. As the world outside is raging and is against each other, when we are here together as the body of Christ, we are unified. Although we might have different preferences and interests, we are unified. And so Paul says, complete my joy. And I would argue that Paul's joy is our joy. That we are to strive for unity, to strive for the joy of knowing what it means to be unified as the body of Christ. Over time, I believe we're prone to disunity. 
Uh, when, you, when you first join a church, maybe that first year, first few months, you know it is the honeymoon stage, man. You tell all your friends, my church is the best church I've ever been a part of. But over time, what happens? We begin to be dissatisfied with the church. We see the flaws. We see the weaknesses. And what tends to happen is we move on to somewhere else. The reality is, is we gather as a people this morning who are broken. The church is a hospital for sinners. We are not perfect. We don't claim perfection in this place this morning. But what unifies us is not our perfection, but Christ's perfection on our behalf. So he says, bring my joy to completion by four things. So again, you can see these in in the text there. These are all found in verse 2. How do we bring about the the completion of, of our joy and Paul's joy? Four things. He says, think alike, love alike, be of one soul, and be of one mind. Notice first he says, think alike. He's not talking about doctrine here. Surely Paul wants us to be unified doctrinally. But what he has in mind here is a genuine agreement in all things, in all of life. Um, Not that we all have the same preferences. There are some of you in this place this morning who have different preferences on music style. Some of you would prefer that the temperature in the sanctuary sanctuary this morning be a little bit cooler. Maybe you'd like it to be a little bit warmer. Maybe you, you, you have a preference on what time the service starts. But what he's telling us here is that we should have a shared attitude in all things that is led not by our flesh, but by the Spirit of God. And so interestingly, what unifies us is doctrine. We gather as Southern Baptists in this place under a statement of faith, under a confession of faith. We, we tend to agree as the local church on the essentials of the faith, faith, but what divides us tends to be the color of the paint on the wall. Paul then goes on to tell us to love alike. He says, love others equally. This is an impossibility to do when you are in a family. Now, don't look around the room, lest you find all the eyes looking at you. But you know how a family is. At that family reunion, we all have that one uncle or aunt that you dread sitting by at Thanksgiving because they're just hard to love. It's called life. There are people in this place this morning who are hard to love. But the word here is the word agape love. It is not built on preferences. Agape love is a Christ-centered love that intentionally seeks the welfare of others. But more importantly, John tells us in 1 John chapter 3 that this type of love is a mark of a true Christian. Listen to what John says in 1 John 3, 14. He says, we know that we have passed out of death into life. Why? Because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. This is serious what we're talking about here. This is a sacrificial type of love, and where disunity exists in the local church, love does not exist. Thirdly, he says, be of one soul. This is a selfless harmony that's rooted in genuine concern for God's people, not superficial concern. And then finally, he says, be of one mind. This literally means in the original language, thinking one thing. I love this that our hearts and our minds would be set on one thing, and that is to lift high the name of Jesus. And so he expresses really the same idea in four ways, and that is this. Church, be unified. Now, 
in true Pauline fashion, the, the words keep flowing. So we're not done yet. Move on with me here to five practical ways that uni- unity manifests itself. So Paul says, here is, here's the joy you have in Christ. Grow in that joy by doing these four things. What does it look like? Let's see what it looks like. Five things. You see these in verses three through four. First, he says, do nothing from rivalry. Some of your translations say selfish ambition. This is building yourself up by tearing others down. Secondly, he says, do nothing from conceit. Again, some of your translations will say vain glory. This is a high view of self that seeks glory of self and always being right, always getting your way. Then thirdly, he says, and this is the heart of the passage, he says, in humility. We're going to see here in a moment when we get to the meat of the passage at the end, when we look to the gospel of Jesus Christ We're going to look to the humility of Christ, the creator of the universe. This is the opposite of the former two, rivalry and conceit. And and look at the beautiful definition. He makes it really simple for us here. What is humility? What does he say? Counting others more significant than yourselves. I love it when when scripture is simple and precise. that's That's a truth, mom and dad, that you should teach to your kids. Hey, let's, let's count others as more significant than ourselves. And yet, as adults, we should probably learn that from time to time and be reminded of that from time to time. This is a genuine belief that others in this place are more valuable than you. Do you feel that way this morning? Fourthly, he says, do not look out for yourself. The personal interest uh, is what he has in mind here. He's not talking about personal care. Uh, you might be familiar with the term asceticism, where, where you deny yourself of worldly comfort to impress God. That is not biblical. That's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about our own personal interest, our own personal preferences. Listen, it is possible to be interested in good, healthy things in the life of this church, but to let your personal preferences and issues and interest in them cause division. It's a hard thing to wrestle with. Finally, he says, look out for others. Be sincere. When others rejoice, rejoice with them. Oftentimes, it's hard for us when people in our our, uh, circle of influence are finding success to be happy for them. But as brothers and sisters in Christ, we rejoice when others rejoice. We weep when others weep. We hurt when our brothers and sisters go through seasons of loss and pain and suffering. We bear one another's burdens in Christ. Now, Paul says a lot in these first four verses, but here's how I want us to think about these first four verses together this morning. Our tendency is to make much of ourselves. And this has been our problem from the beginning in the garden and it is the root of all of our sin. We want to be like God. We want to make much of ourselves. And the gospel calls us to something greater than self. And when we act in such a way and bring disunity in the church, we prove that we are most concerned with our own interest. We make little of Christ, and ultimately, Paul tells us here, we are in sin. Uh, there's a, a trend in the evangelical church today called love bombing. Maybe some of you have heard of this. It's kind of a new terminology given to an old way of doing things. Um, 
You see this a lot in cults. Uh, if, if you've interacted with, with Mormons before, you've probably experienced this type of superficial, fake type of sincerity and concern for you. Uh, where you interact with them and they just have a really giant smile on their face and they're just overly excited to see you and you feel kind of uncomfortable by, by the fact that they're really excited to see you. They're intentionally trying to put on this, this show for you to impress you, to make you think they are concerned with you and really it's about them and their own interest. And we see this growing in, in the church today. That we, we don't genuinely love people, but we just pretend and we tell them and we put on a big smile and then we go our ways and we don't do life together. We don't have to pretend this morning, brothers and sisters in Christ, to love one another if we truly know the love of Christ. And so in light of all that we have in Christ, and as we're going to see here in these closing verses in a moment, fight for unity, church. Don't let things of the flesh command your emotions. I keep going back to the color of the paint and the color of the carpet. Don't get so emotional about the fact that this carpet here is blue. It's very trivial. Don't put prerequisites on your love. Do you only sit next to the people when we come to gather in this place this morning who are easy for you to love? As an introvert, that's my tendency. I want to gravitate to the people who are easy for me to talk to and to love because I don't like the awkwardness convicting to me. Who do you, who do you gravitate to? Is it the same people? Are you putting prerequisites on your relationships in this church? Don't let minor differences hinder you or others. We all have differences, and this is rightfully so. The most mature Christians will not see eye to eye on everything. What makes us unique as the body of Christ as individuals is essential to us being the church here in San Antonio and to the ends of the earth. If we were all the same personality type and had the same preferences, there would not be enough flavor in this place to reach San Antonio with the gospel. That's what we see in Scripture. It's good and right that there's some of us in this place this morning who are hard to love. It's good and right that we have different preferences. Make an effort to reach out to people who are not in your normal circle of influence. Division is inevitable when we exclude people from our group or our circle. Be okay with not getting your way. Different personalities will see things differently. We can have disagreements in the life of the church in a way that is edifying. And after a decision is made and in the, in the means of leadership that Christ has put over this church, we move on in unity together, even if we didn't get our way. Recognize your own sinfulness. Paul said he was the chief of sinners. Oftentimes what causes disunity is we are so caught up in what everybody else is doing wrong that we rarely stop to consider the fact that we know our sin in our heart better than anyone else. And then give room for people with other ministry priorities. Now, there are people in the, in the life of the church, and this is true of every church, who, who, want, who tend to believe that evangelism is the chief function of the church. And everything they do is about evangelism. And then there's people who tend to believe that discipleship is the primary function of the church. 
And the reality is, is both of those things are equally important. And yet we get in fights about, well, this is what evangelism is doing. This is what discipleship is doing. What about my ministry? What about my team? What about my preferences? Brothers and sisters, rejoice in the success of others. Weep with the sorrowful. Listen well to the concerns of others. But most importantly, set aside your pride for the greater good of this place. The reason, though, that we so often don't apply these simple life applications to our lives is because we don't grasp the truth that supports them. This simple application of verses 1 through 4, and we could also point out verse 5 here as application, is supported by a great truth. In verses 5 through 11, we see that church unity flows from the gospel. If you'd continue reading with me, beginning in verse 5, it says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Church unity flows from the gospel. Notice Paul says there, have this mind among yourselves, church. Uh, this word mind we've seen three times in the text we've read this morning. Uh, he also mentioned it back in verse 27 of chapter 1. Paul is telling us here to have the mind of Christ. This is a command. This is an imperative. He wants us to have the mind of Christ. And we ask ourselves, how do we know what the mind of Christ is? What does that look like? Well, the good news is for us is that when we come to these final verses, in order to answer that question, how do we know the mind of Christ? We have to look no further than the gospel itself. Uh, some theologians call this the gospel hymn, verses 5 through 11. They believe that uh, this was a hymn that was sung in the early church to uh, exalt the name of Christ, to speak of his humiliation and his exaltation. Uh, in verses 6 through 8, we indeed see the humiliation of Christ. So I want us to just walk through these verses, 6 through 8, for a moment. And I want you to notice the downward trend of Christ from heaven as creator and sustainer of the universe down to the cross. Watch it with me. First, he says, though he was in the form of God. That word form speaks to an unaltering reality. Christ has always and will forever be fully God. He goes on to say there, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He did not cease to be God when he came to this earth, but he, rather he gave up his divine rights in submission to the Father's will. And so when we look at the life and ministry of Jesus, you never see him using his authority as God for personal gain. He suffered at the hands of wicked sinners without demanding the honor that he alone was due. He never opposed the Father's will. And it says there, a thing to be grasped. This is not that Christ is trying to reach out and grasp something that he does not already have, but rather he let loose of what was rightfully his as the creator of the universe by coming near to us in the form of a man. 
John MacArthur says of this, he had all the rights and privileges of God, which he could never lose, yet he refused to selfishly cling to his favored position as the divine son of God, nor view it as a prized possession to make, to be used for himself. It goes on there in the text. It says he made himself nothing. He emptied himself. He abandoned all he was due. He was despised by men. He did not exercise his full power. He could have commanded the angels to come and bring him down from the cross. He could have commanded uh, the angels to come and wipe his enemies off the face of the earth. He could have done it himself when he was mocked and despised, and yet he didn't. He gave up the riches of heaven. He gave up face-to-face fellowship with God. And look what it says there next. It says, taking the form of a servant. We see that word form again, just as he fully exists in the form of God. Here we see him coming to us in the form of a slave to serve broken sinners like you and me. He came to this earth. He had no rights, no possessions, and he carried our burdens serving us perfectly. It goes on, it says, he was being born in the likeness of men and found in human form. He is indeed God in flesh, a man among men. He was frail, hungry, he suffered pain, he wept, he was tired, he was tempted and was without sin. And we see the importance of this in Hebrews chapter 2. If you would, turn with me over to Hebrews chapter 2. We cannot uh, pass this up. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14 through 18. Listen to the importance of Jesus, God himself, becoming a man. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14 says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Next, it says he became obedient to the point of death on a cross. Christ's perfect obedience to the Father did not lead him to the throne room of kings to be heralded, but rather it led him in obedience to the cruel death on a Roman cross. The creator of the world came near to us and died a horrible death in our place. Crucifixion is the most reprehensible form of death the world has ever seen, and yet this is the only way it could be. Only in death could the Father's plan of redemption unfold. I take you back to Hebrews again, Hebrews chapter 9, because again, I want us to see the importance of this. In Hebrews chapter 9, verses 13 through 14, we see that indeed Christ had to come, God in flesh, without sin, and die in our place. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 13 says, For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, 
who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. In these first few verses, we see the humiliation of Christ, but finally in verses 9 through 11, we see his exaltation. In Philippians 2, verse 9, it says that he is highly exalted. Christ alone receives the highest honor. He is Lord of all. He has conquered sin and death, and right now he reigns at the Father's right hand, and one day he will return. He is King of kings and Lord of lords. He is the conqueror of sin and death. And all of creation will bow down before him and confess his lordship. This is the king we serve. This conquering king who made himself low so that we might be exalted to the Father. It is this gospel truth this morning, church, that unifies us. What has brought us to this place this morning is not our common interest in football or our military backgrounds or our, our, our fashion preferences. What has brought us to this place this morning is what we just read of, that God himself came near to us to redeem us, to save us from our wretched sinful state from an eternity that was set for hell to bring us near to God. That is why we gather in this place this morning, the truth of the gospel. And we are unified this morning by faith in him alone as his spirit resides in each of us. This illustration is an illustration I found from someone else, this is not my illustration, I don't, I don't want to take credit for this, but if you were to place a magnet in a pile of iron shavings, those shavings would be drawn together by the magnet. And even if an outside force comes and tries to pull them away from the magnet, they will eventually be drawn back to the source, back to the magnet. Surely there will be conflicts in the life of this church. Surely there will be things that we don't see eye to eye on, but we should always come back to the gospel. When we truly understand the depths of what Christ has done on our behalf, we will walk as he walked, not seeking our own welfare, but the welfare of others, seeking the good of the church over our own preferences. And so as we conclude this morning, I want to pose this question to you. How, how are you doing so far? I know as I walk through this passage, I am convicted of my own imperfections, my own tendency to be prideful and self-centered. Oftentimes we think of disunity and our thoughts run to what others are doing or have done to us. We hold on to hurt and don't ever stop to consider our part in the life of the church. Maybe some of you this morning are feeling that type of hurt. And the good news is that there's grace in this place. No one here is perfect. And so when you fall short 
seek forgiveness. And when others fail you, be quick to forgive them. And so there are probably some of you here this morning who are holding on to hurt. And, and I'm, I'm not talking about made-up hurt. I'm, I'm talking about you have genuinely be, been hurt by someone who's sitting in this place this morning. Maybe you're in the midst of an ongoing conflict with another brother or sister who's sitting nearby today. Or maybe you just need to reconcile with someone over something that's happened in the past or maybe something that's happened recently. Consider the cross of Christ this morning, friend. And do not leave this place this morning without reconciling with that brother or sister in Christ. Maybe you're here and you aren't in the midst of a conflict, but you realize this morning that you don't genuinely care for the others around you. Here's my challenge for you this morning. Before you leave this place, I want you to find someone that you don't know, and I simply want you to ask them how you can pray for them this week. And see how that simple act will allow for you to build up that genuine concern for others who gather in this place. Or maybe you realize this morning that you just aren't involved in the life of this church as you should be. And maybe this morning you need to commit yourself to this covenant body of believers and membership. To commit to this group of people, Calvary Hills Baptist Church, in membership to unify under the banner of the gospel so that we might go out from this place and impact San Antonio and the ends of the earth with this glorious news we've talked about this morning. And so here's my challenge to you, is that as we close this time, that you would respond appropriately. I want to encourage you again today, as we did last week, this altar is open for you to come and pray. If you need to walk clear across this sanctuary to somebody on the other side and ask for their forgiveness, do that. Too much is at stake, dear brothers and sisters, for us to hold on to any type of discord. Christ prayed, paid too high a price for us to hold on to petty differences. Reconcile this morning. And as we close this time, would you consider how the Spirit is leading you to go about the business of being unified? That should be our prayer and our desire. Let's pray.